Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Brooks Forsyth. Hey, everyone. Brad Large. Hey, how's it going? On her debut episode as a panelist, we have Petra Manos. Hey, how are you going? Now, do you want to just uh, remind everybody who you are since they've only heard from you once? Yeah, sure. So my name's Petra. I'm here in Australia, and I am a Google Tag Manager Google Data Studio Data Analyst, and also uh, now have Google Ads as part of my service offerings as well. So I'm a Google person, and I work primarily with transactional websites. Nice. And she's a trooper because uh, we haven't been able to change the time of our recordings yet, and I think it's like 2 a.m. there. I actually woke up at 2.05 a.m., worried that I was going to miss the show. So there you go. My body actually knew what time it was. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> when I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call to help me find a developer who can build it. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile developers that you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to g2i.co to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget. And the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to g2i.co to learn more about G2i. So yeah, we appreciate it. And we're, we're going to be changing the recording time, but I just want the listener to appreciate that you've made a sacrifice to be here. Um, we also have a special guest. We have Mike Vulcan back. Mike, do you want to just remind people briefly who you are? Thanks. Yeah. Well, apparently now I'm special. That's nice. Um, I didn't think so. Uh, so uh, I own Freelancer Masterclass. I help freelancers um, become uh, side hustlers to full-time freelancers. And I also help, help people break free of the corporate rat race and, and uh, start their freelancing career. Nice. And uh, yeah, this week on the docket, and this is a uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart since I, uh, I think I uh, transitioned through like every iteration of how you actually uh, price things and bill people. Um, we're, we're talking about uh, not doing hourly billing. Yeah. Hourly billing is way too prevalent in uh, today's freelancing society. And hopefully today we'll bust some myths and we'll get people on the right track. Uh, it's not good for the client. It's not good for the freelancer. Yeah. Well, have you read Jonathan Stark's book, Hourly Billing is Nuts? I have read his book. I have talked to him. I have my own podcast, Freelancer School, and uh, he was a guest there a couple of weeks ago, and he's a, he's a great guest. Yeah. He used to be a panelist on this show, and um, yeah, totally changed the way I looked at it. There was another fellow as well that uh, I don't want to get his name wrong, so I'll just bring it up in a minute, but he also talked about value-based pricing, and both of those made a huge impact on me as far as um, if you go listen to like episode one or two, we were all like, you have to do hourly billing because you never know how long the project's going to take. And that way you get paid for every hour you put in. And by the end, we were like, hourly billing is insane. So um, I, I'm curious as we talk through this, um, especially with Petra and Brad and Brooks, um, do you do hourly billing? Do you bill by the project? I mean, wh what's your approach and why have you chosen to do that? And then we'll get Mike in talking about why we may want to do it differently. Yeah, so that's that's kind of interesting. So I, I kind of uh, came up on the school of the freelancer show and listening to, you know, Jonathan Stark and all those guys talk about 
billing. So uh, when I got my start, you know, just as a side hustler, I um, like the hardest part about trying to not do hourly billing is that uh, at first I felt like I had to explain it, which was just really annoying. And then the, the uh, you know, like why this is bad for you and for me, but people don't seem too interested. There's a really embedded culture as far as uh, like people paying for coaching and consulting, just, well, what's your hourly rate, right? That's like, that's a, the prevalent question that I ran into. So, but I tried to uh, come up with different product offerings and most of the, the project work that I do, I do not do. Uh, I've not been proposing uh, hourly uh, at all. And I do have one product. People can actually uh, get uh, on my Calendly and pay me for a like block of time, basically. Um, so if they do have urgent problems, they can go on there and schedule like an hour or two hours. Uh, but I'm trying to get completely off of that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll go next. Um, I actually, I normally bill by hour. I just, uh, unless I think it's been three weeks. Um, I, you know, quoted a project and, and I'm billing on project for this, uh, latest contract. Um, but yeah, usually it's billed per hour just because that's, the way uh, clients like to pay for me at least, but um, you know, I'd like to change that for sure. I think it depends on the customer or getting the right clients. I've had a mixed bag of experience with this myself. So I've been freelancing for three years and when I first started, I was determined to only um, build by projects. It didn't quite work out like that though, because what I found is that certainly with the tag manager, um, not JavaScript programming, the jobs tended to be fairly small and um, I didn't really know how long things were going to take. So I would build by the project, but because a project would only be a few hours long, my overruns would put me into an actual hourly rate much less than if I had billed hourly in the first place. And so I actually found that when I was billing hourly, my projects were a lot more profitable for me and would enable me to stay in business. So I had to try and work out how I was going to structure this. And it, it didn't really get easier because as I progressed in my freelance career, I got more and more complicated projects. So just when I thought, oh, I'm, I'm doing well, I'm doubling my price for this project the actual complexity of the project would triple and then again I'd be on the back foot because I wouldn't actually be covering my costs for the project so um, what I realized actually with my type of work because I'm doing analytics there's um, and and I guess the same thing happens now with the ads but for the first couple of years I was only doing analytics the scope for analytics isn't really fixed like it is for a development project where there is only one feature that's being developed in a, in a particular task and you've got a clear delineation of when it's starting and when it's finishing. With the analytics, it tends to be a combination of uh, the actual implementation work and consulting as well. And the project is only really finished when 
everybody understands what's going on. And what I found is that clients don't always understand the, the training I give them or the reports I give them. And it takes a lot longer to explain how it all works. So there can be really, and also I can get varying levels of customer service in terms of emails in my inbox and things. So it can be really, really hard to work out upfront how much um, time something is going to take. And certainly looking from a value perspective, it's really hard for me to work out what kind of value a report is going to give to a client. Um, I mean, some clients uh, are turning over millions of dollars a month and I've sold them one report for a thousand dollars that's made them tens of thousands of dollars a month. Whereas other clients are um, getting value more in terms of um, they feel better about knowing what they're doing with their digital marketing, but they're not necessarily getting the financial value here and now because they might be like a massage clinic or something like that. They don't necessarily get the financial value from the report here and now takes a while for them to get that. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, most of the projects I've done were software and what I figured out that a, it was much more profitable for me to do it project based as opposed to hourly based. Um, it also allowed me to take a little bit more freedom and just, you know, go do it the way that it needed to be done um, because they weren't worried about how much time I was spending. Um, I mean, initially I did hourly and I would just go consult at companies and, you know, I would do the best I could, but eventually I got there. If it was kind of an open-ended thing, you know, kind of like what you're talking about, Petra, a lot of times I would do weekly billing. And so I would, I would bill them and I would essentially promise them that I would you know, move the project ahead so much or get a certain amount of work done there. And that seemed to work for me as well. Um, and so toward the end, yeah, I would either quote per project or per week. I've started doing 10 hour blocks with some of, so what I've started doing, what I've transitioned to 10 hour blocks for the smaller projects. Um, and then I've got 50 hour blocks and hundred hour blocks, which I'm pricing differently. But the problem that I have there is if I, and, and so I give them 18 months to use that block because with the analytics, like I said, they tend to be small projects. So I'm usually working multiple concurrent projects at right. the same time. Um, but the trouble that I have there is let's say I sell a hundred hours, then I feel pressure to do all those hundred hours. Whereas if I had sold it as a fixed price, then there's going to be some situations where, um, I sell it for the same price, but I only spend 75 hours and that's fine. And I'm able to move on to another project and, um, you know, pocket the rest as, as profit, which, you know, every business needs profit. Um, so it's, it's tricky because feeling that pressure to then do the hours and um, even worse when sometimes in my business, I would need to subcontract to another agency because I found that, often the ones that know that they need help with Google Tag Manager are agencies who are actually delivering the you know, website or marketing to, to their clients. And some of them even ask for timesheets. So uh, in order to get away from hourly billing, I have to cut them off as an actual client, but they tend to be some of my repeat clients. Yeah. I didn't want my scheduling or like future work. So I, I kind of toyed around with the idea of selling blocks of time or something at one point just to try to move to in that direction. But I, I really, my sim, my system's really simple. You go on, you schedule a time and you pay me ahead of time. And then we have a meeting 
like, and I did the upfront payment, which is great. And I had them schedule the time right then just so that I knew my commitments going up and it was already allocated so that I didn't have to worry about that. Like, Oh, well, this guy's got, you know, 10 hours coming up. You know, I've got to account for that in my current schedule. I mean, it seemed to me that that might limit, you know, the potential down the road. And uh, I think one of the hardest parts for me getting started with value-based pricing, and they say an easy entry is like a productized service. And so I, I took that to heart. And, you know, I work on a platform that's it, it's kind of easy to do that on. So, uh, but even then getting in and trying to find a niche market and, you know, identify a need in there, if you haven't had those clients yet, like I hadn't, then it gets difficult because you're having conversations about what their values are and how you can productize that um, can be a little bit tricky, especially without, you know, trends, without having done it, right? So that was kind of like one of the roadblocks I ran into there, but it's something that I've been working through just by having conversations with clients or potential clients. Interesting. Mike, what's your take on all this? Well, I mean, hourly billing is easy to understand from both parties' perspective. So it's typically the way it's, it's been done. Um, but really, there's a multitude of other ways that would benefit both the client and the freelancer. And the most common one, the most common alternative is fixed-based pricing. So Petra had talked about, well, I set up these blocks of time and I'll sell on 100 hours. It's not so much selling on a, on a block of time. Um, you don't, the client doesn't even know how much time you spend. I mean, look, I, I've used this example before on, on a previous episode with you guys. I recently hired two writers to write virtually the same blog post. I gave them the same criteria. Um, one was, um, they were actually, they were both about uh, $40 an hour and one delivered the uh, one blog post in great condition um, about twice as fast as the other person. So even though they appeared to have the same hourly rate, the same quality, everything was the same to them. Or uh, from my perspective, they were vastly different. One was twice as expensive as the other. So when a client hires you, um, they don't know how fast you work. I mean, typically, I mean, should that work against me as a marketer? Because I work about twice as fast as the average marketer. And I've worked with a lot of marketers and I know how much I can get done in an hour. And when I see marketers billing me for work that took them four hours that I know couldn't have possibly taken them more than two. Um, how would I have known that in advance? Like, do you, do you ask them during the interview process, how fast do you work? And if so, do you believe their answer? Like, who are they comparing fastness to? Like, it's just, it's a terrible indicator of work output from the client's perspective. Yeah. You're basically shooting yourself in the foot. If you are like, I, part of the reason that I had a drive to do freelance is because like I look around at different jobs I've had and I've been like, okay, I do this pretty well. I'm really fast. And I deliver, there's value in delivering that stuff faster. So penalizing somebody for delivering faster is, you know, one of the, the big reasons that hourly billing just completely breaks down when you give it any thought, the more effective and more efficient that I am as, as a worker, as a, as a freelancer, the more I'm penalized, right? Exactly. I had this experience just recently, actually. I was subcontracting to an agency and I'd been working for them at an hourly rate and it was actually lower than my usual hourly rate for the amount of hours that they were giving me. So I let them know what my current hourly rate was and, um, and they 
the same project came up that I'd done several times in the past. And they said, oh, are you available for this project again? And I said, yes, but it'll be at this new hourly rate. And they said, oh, we've got two days available to do it. And I said, well, it'll only take me six hours, but um, this is what my hourly rate is. And it was higher than it was before. They declined, I don't know why, but they declined me for the job um, because the hourly rate was higher than they were willing to pay, even though the total project price would be significantly less than paying a new person at the old hourly rate for the two days instead of six hours. <laughs> Go figure. I think some some clients still want to hold on to hourly rate. Yep, yeah, absolutely. well, it's a, it's a false perception of work quality too. I yeah. Mean, I mean, it's, it's so bad from the, the, it's so bad from the client's point of view, but it's so per, persuasive or pervasive and everybody just asks you instinctively, what's your hourly rate? And then my, my response now is, um, what do you, what are you hoping to get out of that answer? I say it in a nicer way, but I mean, are you looking to, um, know my work quality? Um, if I tell you a hundred dollars an hour, does that mean that my quality of work is better than somebody that's 50? Does that mean I work twice as fast as somebody that, that charges 200? I mean, I, what are you looking for? Like, why is your budget $80 an hour and tell, you're telling me I'm too expensive at a hundred. I've never done work for you. I have no idea what you're going to get out of that hundred dollars an hour. Right? So there, the way that I like to approach it is instead of saying an hourly rate, I say, well, I'm experienced to know, to know enough to know what this project consists of. Let me scope it out the best way possible. And then I'll give you a flat rate based on what I know about the project. And then anything that happens over and above that, um, then we can talk about an hourly charge, but I'm going to put into my scope of work, the necessary meetings and communication and all the time that I think is necessary. And I won't tell the client this, but I usually fudge factor it about 10%. I'll upcharge 10% because some clients are more difficult than others, right? They, they require hour long calls instead of half an hour long calls, whatever. I'll build that all in. But the more experience you get as a freelancer, the more comfortable you are with this. And it's better from your perspective because from my perspective as a marketer, uh, some things I do are pretty templateish. About 80% of the work I do is templateish. Like I was just working on a content marketing plan for a client. And to be honest, I've written about two dozen of these and 80% of them are the same. So I have a template that I work with. I can get a content marketing plan done in three hours. The client will get something completely unique and custom to them, but there's no reason for me to charge three hours um, to do a content marketing plan that they would have otherwise paid 12 or 20 that somebody else actually paid for because it was a template that I, uh, I had originally created for someone else. So um, there's so many reasons why flat rate is better, it, especially with on clients uh, or with clients on a budget. So if a client, that's the reason why they're asking you their hourly rate because they have the budget they have to stick to. So just come back to them and say, what is your budget on this? Um, because I can work within your budget. This is what I can do within your budget. And uh, if you're giving them an hourly rate, they have to make that guesswork, that, that estimate based on your hourly rate. And a lot of times, a big problem is clients don't know what it takes to get work done. They just know they need something done. You're the freelance professional. You know what it takes to get it done, right? Right. I think what's important about what you said as well is like when you get into these discussions with a group of freelancers like us who, you know, we, our group, we've tried different things, right? So we're talking about this, but we have some assumptions. And one of the assumptions that I think you called out uh, kind of indirectly was you're, you're dealing with templatized, repeatable processes. So, you know, if you are specialized enough in what you do that you can templatize it or uh, make efficiencies in your process, then, you know, one, you, you shouldn't be uh, penalized for that. 
right? For, for getting those efficiencies put in there. But on the flip side, it's recognizing those trends and things that you're doing uh, that are repeatable so that you can increase your profit by pricing this way, right? And also help your client by delivering much faster and, you know, uh, have a better, like, insight into how this is going to play out. Like that kind of, you're, you're reducing the risk of, hey, is this going to work or what? Because you've done it before, right? Yeah. So- the, the, the other thing that I've seen with the hourly billing, so when I was doing it, one thing that I did run into at some points where um, I'd get kind of the skeptical look and the, are you sure it should have taken that long or push back on the number of hours that I spent doing a particular thing. And, you know, to, to Mike's point earlier, they have no idea what it takes to do it. And so, you know, I, I try and explain, you know, look, it turned out to be a little harder than it was supposed to. Um, sometimes I'd actually told them up front, I was like, look, it might cost you a couple extra hours on this piece and this piece because I've never done it before, but I've done all the rest of it. So it'll make it up. And so they're happy with the hours I spent on the other thing. And then, you know, I spent a couple hours longer than they thought it should have taken on the other stuff because I got the the original things that I was good at and already knew how to do done more quickly anyway. And so, yeah, it just turns into this weird negotiating thing where in the end, they wound up saving money because 90% of it was stuff that I was already prepped for and ready to do. And the other 10% took an extra 10% of that 10% to get it done. Yeah. And that, that sounds like once that resentment, like that kind of questioning and, you know, there's almost like a resentment behind it. Like the, once that trust factor starts to erode, then, I mean, it's, it's just bad for everybody. Yep. And I'll tell you from experience that the, the later in the conversation, you can talk to a client about hourly rate, the better, because your job when you get on a discovery call is to uh, give them a sense that you know exactly what needs to be done. You're the expert that can solve their problem. You're the solution to their problem. So when it gets time to the point to talk about hourly rates or they, they want to ask me that, that question that's been in the back of their mind is like, what do you charge? I don't talk about hourly. And even if they do, uh, it doesn't matter as much now because they've already kind of committed to me that I'm the one um, that can solve their problem. So um, even if I did answer with an hourly rate, uh, it would be less they wouldn't be comparing me to their budget or what they had because they know that um, that if they give me the project that it could be done with little little effort on their part. Less Accounting provides a reliable, dedicated bookkeeper along with project manager to ensure that your business finances are crystal clear and up to date. How are your profits this month? How much are you making on the services or products sold? How much money is left over for yourself to invest back in your business? What's your debt situation like? Are your products selling? Do you have an emergency fund? Those kinds of questions are the things that Less Accounting software and team can answer anytime within minutes. You'll have a real human categorize your transactions. The software platform provides the ability to auto-import and auto-categorize transactions. You can create proposals and invoices in it. And they have 20-plus reports that you can use to figure out where you're at. So go check them out lessaccounting.com. Yeah. So, um, I, and I probably should have shared this before. I actually just signed some paperwork, like a contract form for, um, getting paid by point. Um, which is just, I was very curious about it. You know, um, if you're not a software developer, you might not, um, understand it, but you break down software development tasks and then you point them, um, in the scrum 
so it's just interesting. I, I was so curious. I don't think it's going to work out for me because I don't think the price per point is high enough for it to work. But uh, I just want to see what it's like to, if I can make it make sense or not, um, you know, financial sense. It's just interesting. Um, interesting. I mean, yeah. That's I hilarious. Out. I mean, the whole point of, sometimes when I take on a client, <clears throat> um, even when they say they can't afford me, I'll take them on just as an introductory low rate just for a couple hours so they know the quality of the work. Uh, that's only, you know, do that if you're confident. Because I can't tell you how many clients that I've started off with a low rate that I've, I've um, wound up getting a much bigger project out of it. Um, there's some repercussions to that. But um, if you know it's a good company and good team that you like working with, um, it wouldn't hurt to try doing just a small fixed project um, so you can exceed their expectations. and They won't have any issue charging uh, or um, paying you more for another project. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's... Uh... It's one of those things where I can come and go as I want. So it'll, you know, help with the slow times in between um, contracts. Um, so from that perspective, it definitely makes sense, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I, was, I was shocked when they said we pay by point. And that's like a thing that I've never heard of that before until, uh, until I talked to this guy. So we'll see how it works. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. I know some BAs that I've worked with, you know, or... PMs or whoever was doing the, the estimations that I would love to get paid by the point and others that I would have been terrified to get paid by the point. It depends how much the point means, right? Like how much work. Exactly. Is point. It can vary so much. I mean, yeah. and especially if you're using the, um, the Fibonacci sequence and you get up into an eight point card, you know, where the, the risk of the unknown is there. But it's a really interesting concept. I, I, I'm really uh, excited to hear how that yeah, I'll definitely share how, how it works. I should be starting it pretty soon. So we'll see. Since you guys are programmers, do you guys ever charge value-based pricing? Or oh, you- I wish. Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm playing around with with Salesforce. A lot of the Salesforce partners out there um, are incentivized to sell additional services. And, uh, you know, that's part of any tech framework, I feel like they, they get in there, they, they want to sell like an implementation and then ongoing service contracts and stuff like that. So I've been coming up with uh, like different packs. I'm testing out two markets right now and trying to come up with a productized service for nonprofits and, and then one for the aviation uh, marketing industry um, and, and trying to, to go about that that way. Basically just, you know, here's the, here's the predefined scope and here's how much it's going to cost, which uh, if the only Salesforce partners that I've seen do it offer a ridiculously low rate on their website that they always like, not, I won't say always, but 99% of the time, that's just a price to get somebody to inquire. And then when they actually do the implementation, they're like, oh, that's special. That's special. And they, they jack up the price. I've had yeah. people ask me, how much value did your other clients get out of the analytics reports that you created for them. And I know that's an entry into the value-based pricing, but the, the problem was I couldn't really answer their question because I looked at the clients that I had worked with on an analytics basis and looked at the the profits they were making in the next year. And they, they had all gone up quite a lot in terms of their revenue. Um, However, that wasn't just attributed to me because typically by the time they're getting an analytics person in, they might have also changed their marketing team. 
they're exploring new marketing channels and a lot of those projects are longer ongoing projects whereas what I was doing with the Google Tag Manager and the analytics uh, reporting was uh, you know setting up all of their tracking and then reporting them in a way that they could get some strategic insight then we'd go through and consult so I've got particular reports that are for conversion rate optimization and we can find out where they're losing profit or sorry, where they're, where they're losing revenue from their website, basically. We can find all the little nuances and, and levers on their website where they are losing clients or losing customers. And um, a, a lot of clients, are, we're going through that meeting and they're really excited. They're taking lots of notes and, and putting those things into practice. But then for me to be able to say, this is how much value attributed to my portion of their project is is pretty much impossible, especially for my analytical brain. <laughs> I just uh, can't really deliver an answer on that. So then when, when they say, well, how, how much value? I, I, I don't really know how to answer the question. So then if they say, well, how much value am I going to get out of your service? Then again, I don't know how to answer the question at all. It, I mean, obviously it depends on what their revenue is, but for me to attribute a certain percentage of their revenue or an increase just feels too hard to reach for me. Have you reached down to your past clients and, and asked them what they felt the value they got out of it was? Yeah, it's interesting. I have done that. And um, I, it's interesting. I, I've, got, I've, I've got clients who are raving fans who give me um, fantastic testimonials. And then I've, I've probably got some clients where I think the value that I gave them... <laughs> It wasn't that what I did wasn't valuable. It's more that maybe they didn't know how to continue getting value out of the work that I did after it was delivered. So at the time that it was delivered, they got so much value out of it. They got so much new insights. But then over time, they didn't know how to draw new insights out and maybe they they didn't reach out to me or I didn't reach out to them again because I had new projects going on and we could have created new value um and and so I guess those clients they've kind of drifted off into the distance and they they haven't become my you know um repeat clients or you know raving fans but um, the ones that I have reached out to, they, they've said that they know that they attributed revenue to the insights in my reports. So I had a large retailer come back to me recently and they asked me for pricing on some more work. And they told me that for a report that I'd created for them that was, I only charged them $1,000, they had made a significant return on their investment because they were turning over so much per month and they know they they attributed new revenue to the insights that I found. But then when I tried to fix a project of, again, it was only um, six and a half thousand for a much more comprehensive report, um, they turned around and said, no, we, we won't do uh, a fixed price project of that size. We just wanted another thing for a thousand. I'm like, well, that's my, that was my introductory project. So even though they said that they got so much value out of it, that particular client wasn't willing to pay for a more comprehensive report. And that, um, that can, um, 
obviously there's millions of other clients out there that would, especially when they know that they're going to get the revenue. But when you do get knocked back like that, it can be a shame for your confidence in a way because you think, oh, well, why wouldn't you want to when you know that you got revenue from it? Have you tried just turning it around and saying how much, how much is it worth for you to know the answer to this question? Yeah, it's... I mean, that might be hard to do because maybe yeah. you don't know the the questions yet until they know the information or whatever. But yeah, I know it's it's. I think it's um it's a process that I'll be developing for sure. Well, it's interesting too. I mean, I have the same problem. It's just a little bit different. A lot of times um, with the podcast sponsors, they're just not looking at the numbers. They're not tracking the information. So when I ask them how well it's working for them, they don't know. Or some of them consider it proprietary information won't tell me. So I can see in my analytics how many people exited my website to theirs, but that's it. And so when people ask me, what kind of value did your previous sponsors get? Uh, you know, I can only give them what I can give them. So it's, it's a tough proposition. The, the other angle on this that I also see is, um, you know, and Petra illustrated this fairly well, is if people are used to the hourly billing model, you know, how do you get them to be willing to switch, especially since essentially you're giving them oranges when they ask for apples and everybody else is giving them apples. And so they have to go do math in order to figure out that you're the better deal, even though you're probably going to get it done faster. Well, I think it's goes back to, I think it has to do with them not doing the math. I mean, when they're, when you quote them hourly, you they're doing that math. Like, will this fit within my budget? Uh, will this person do the work within my budget? What happens if it goes over? There's just so many questions that are running through the person's mind. The only reason why they would want to know your hourly rate is because they're comparing you to someone else. Um, and they have no idea about your work quality or I don't know, maybe their work quality, the person they're being compared, uh, you're being compared to. Um, so when a client brings up hourly, I, that's when I start going off on a little bit of a tangent telling them why, why hourly? Why not fixed rate? What are the advantage to you knowing hourly? And I've never had a good answer to that question. A client has never come back and said, well, this is the reason why we absolutely need hourly. It's like, oh, okay. Like I've never had that answer before. It's always like, well, I just want to know um, what your rate is because we have this budget. I'm like, okay, well, how about I just work within the budget? Or they might say, well, I, I have another freelancer who's charting this. I'm like, okay, well, I think to myself, maybe I haven't done a good enough job um, as if you're still comparing me to others because my work quality is vastly superior to this other person from, you know, who are Bangladesh that you're comparing me to. Maybe I'm on the phone with the wrong client, you know? Uh, so um, when they start talking about hourly, that's when you start, you, you should have three or five things written down that would combat to a client, like why they wouldn't, should not be thinking along lines of hourly. Because uh, most clients, if you're lucky, come to you with a budget and they say, I, this is what I need done. And they say, well, you're over the budget. Okay, well, what can we cut out of that uh, right now? What's the highest priority part, part of this project that we can knock out for you to get the engines running here and to get the revenue coming in or whatever your project um, might be focusing on? Would you say yeah, there's that's... a flaw? Sorry. Um, would you say there's a flaw in terms of the minimum project size to be to have as a fixed price because what I found was that when people were, uh, so like I said, I've done a lot of fixed pricing for most of my freelance career so far. And when the client is adamant that it's a small project and they want to, or we're having a fixed price for a uh, small project, what I find is that if the project goes over in terms of you know, the scope wasn't locked down well or just the, the 
it, it goes over in terms of what I had thought the time was going to be. Um, for me, the overage ends up being a lot more. So you were talking about a 10% fudge factor earlier, but if I'm doing a 10 hour project um, from my perspective and I'm charging uh, a fixed price, then um, I only have to go over by two hours for it to be a, you know, 20% over service. And if I go over by five hours, I'm, I'm 50% out. Um, and that can be really hard to estimate when you don't know the exact technology stack that they're using or you don't know how much they're going to be communicating, trying to work all that out in advance can do your head in a bit with the maths. But certainly I, I try to fix those things, but it can be the worst of both worlds when you try and fix price a small project. Yeah, so for, for my side of that, when I looked at that, I was like worried about, you know, an overage or miscalculation eating into... Uh, basically your, your profit, your revenue, right? So I, I looked at that and from a developer standpoint, I said, what am I in control of and what can I guarantee? And and I think that's the other thing. When you were talking about that, you know, comparing like deconstructing prices, all that kind of stuff. One of the things that like jumps out instantly is, you know, I guarantee that I'm going to get this done for this price. And if you ask a, a developer that's going to charge you hourly to definitely sign off that it's only going to take X amount of hours, they're probably not going to do it. And there are some out there that might, but, but when, when I looked at that, I, I really wanted to control scope on my project. So I'm very clear about what I do and do not do for the scope of uh, the entry product that I offer. Uh, it, I do these things. I'm not in control of these other things. So, you know, there, I do all of this prep so that you can integrate these pieces together but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not in control of that. So I, I very carefully look at the scope of my projects and price it so that even if it does take me, you know, way longer than I think, I'm still, everybody's going to win. Everybody's still happy. And I'm not resentful that this client keeps coming back to me asking for, well, can you do this? Oh, okay. Yeah, we can do that. Right. As long as it's within that, that scope. I think part of it as well is, getting the marketing together to be able to seek out and win those larger contracts. Because if you're always chasing your tail over really small projects uh, and you are going over or, you know, there's scope creep coming in and it's happening repeatedly for project after project, that's going to really erode your margins. But if you're working on larger projects and then you do have a, a fixed price in there, you've got a lot more room to move. Because um, as Chuck was saying before, you have situations where you go, uh, things take longer in some areas, but other areas you've got template eyes and overall it works out. Whereas you're working on really small projects and you only need to have one thing go wrong and you've, um, you've kind of mucked up your project schedule. Yeah. One thing about that, when you said, you know, if you're chasing your tail over small projects over and over again, that I can't remember where I heard this, but basically the outcomes of your life are uh, indicators of your habits. You know, like the ultimate uh, indicator of what your habits are, are getting you are the repeatable things that happen. So if you're constantly chasing that work that is, you know, small, you know, even for, it doesn't matter what your definition of small is, whether it's 500 bucks or 5,000 or 25,000 or whatever your definition of a small project would be, 
Um, if you're constantly chasing those, I would say that the problem is more than likely with you. And I say that from a place of sympathy and love because I have been there. But if, if those are the results that you're consistently getting and you're not happy with them, you need to look at your processes and like you said, your marketing, how you're doing lead gen, you know, there are a million different things it could be, but you have to look at you at that point, especially if you're, if it's consistent. I'd say the marketing definitely comes into it because when you're getting referrals or you're getting incoming leads come in, if you're working within those and you're finding that they're certain um, repeatedly at a certain price point, then it means that you may well have your positioning wrong or you're, you're not really attracting the types of clients that would be uh, more healthy for your business in the long run. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the thing in the first place. So many freelancers are just so anxious to jump on the phone with anybody who wants to talk to them, but you really have to evaluate beforehand what, what exactly uh, you're going to get on the phone with them for. Is it the right client? Is it the right company? Is it the right industry? Is it the right time? You got to think about all that stuff. Um, so I actually turned down about two thirds of the people that want to get on the phone with me because it's not the right time or company or project for me, uh, or they don't have the right budget for me. And I used to, I don't anymore, but I used to have a, a Google survey, um, tied to my calendar Calendly link. So when I first get an email from somebody wanting to get on the phone with me, I'll have them fill out a survey that asks them basic questions about their company and their team and their resources and budget, just so I can see if I want to get on the phone with them. Um, and I don't recommend you do that as a, as a new freelancer, but if you're experienced and have a reputation that people want to get on the phone with you, um, that might be a good idea because I had an issue um, for a while. People just want to grab me for a free discovery call and get as much information they can out of me. So now I have an, a hard policy that I limit all discovery calls to 30 minutes. I mean, we could do a whole show on discovery calls, but I have people that say, yeah, I want to bring on my team member. We're going to do a Zoom call. We're going to record it. And I want to bring on my, the CEO, the VP. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, it's just a discovery call. It's 30 minutes. Anything more than that, I'm going to start charging you. Um, I'm not, you're, I'm not a, a free consultant uh, where you can just get discovery calls and uh, get as much information out of me and then try to outsource it to, to another country or, or something like Preach. that. So, yeah, I, I can't agree more with that. Good. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good policy to have. Um, Google surveys is free. There's lots of other um, surveys like survey monkey or whatnot. You can just set up, what are the questions that are most important to you that you need to know before you get on the phone with a client, if they're even worth your time? Like I had a company just yesterday wanted me to do some SEO work, which I really don't do anymore. And um, they, their budget was insanely low. Like even people from India, Bangladesh wouldn't work for that. I was like, why would you get on a phone? You can see on Upwork, my, my profile, uh, you know, I mean, I lead marketing teams. Why would I jump on a call? But all they wanted to do was get some information, like what direction should they go in and, and should they be taking this approach? I'm like, no, I'm not getting on a discovery call. If you can pay me for that, but I'm not uh, eating up. My time is valuable. I'm not going to eat up my time. I could spend all day talking to companies that want free advice from me, but I'm not going to do it. I, I mean, it's not mean, but you just got to put your foot down at some point. So yeah, I found that bleeds into the rest of what you do as well. If you are willing to jump on the phone in your initial, like if you're not taking control from the sale, uh, I think Blair N says the sale is like a test drive for the relationship. If you're, if you're not being seated, uh, you know, the, your concessions, if you, if you say a 30 minute phone call and they try to run over and you allow that, that relationship, they're going to expect that. Uh, those expectations are set so early on that I feel like, you know, being selective about who you do get on the phone with and, and, and not ceding that power 
in the, the exchange, the relationship, I think is extremely important for setting yourself up for as an authority in general. Yeah, I think there are a lot of ideas here as far as A, knowing what you want to offer and what you're capable of doing because, yeah, it makes it easy to do that value-based pricing and know that you're going to get what you need out of it. Um, you know, Petra's talking about how, you know, you have an overage of one or two hours and yeah, you know, there are things you can adjust. There, there are ways you can do better. Sometimes it's just hard to get right though. Um, but yeah, just looking at it from that standpoint to what Mike and Brad in particular are saying is, is if it's something you understand, well, you know exactly what goes into it and you can offer it as a, a standard offering, then the value-based pricing or the fixed pricing gets a whole lot easier because you know how much you have to make in order to make it worth it. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. We haven't talked about retainers. Sorry. Um, We we haven't talked about retainers at all. I don't know if anyone here has clients on a retainer basis and it's easy to accidentally over-service clients that are on retainer because they pay a certain monthly fee. And then after that, the, the discussion about scope is different compared to when you're working on a fixed project. So I'm just wondering if anyone here has experience with, with retainers and how that's worked out into their billing model. Yeah, I do a lot of retainers. In fact, most of my work right now is retainer based. So a client might say, um, here's my budget for marketing. I need a marketing leader. Um, and then I have to clearly outline the scope, what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. Like, for example, I have one client that I actually do marketing work. I execute the marketing work that I strategize on. And then I have another client where all I do is I work with the team and they execute everything. They just, they talk to me on a daily basis. They ask me questions if they're stuck on something. And I work with the leadership on, uh, you know, presenting them data and presentations and, um, you know, just keep the engines running. That's going to be a different retainer than if I'm actually in the weeds doing the email marketing, you know, doing the layout, setting up the marketing communications on the website, all that stuff. So it's very careful. Uh, it's a very careful process to scope that out. Um, but uh, generally what I do is I provide a, a range. I'll tell them, you know, if you want me to do some marketing actual work, I'm, you know, I need logins and usernames and passwords for all your systems like MailChimp and Active Campaign or whatever it is, then that's going to be more because I'm actually, you know, doing the work uh, rather than just mentorship and strategy and whatnot, which is still work, it's just different type of work. Uh, but yes, I, I do have a, a rolling um, uh, retainership with, with several companies. Um, it, it's uh, a little bit of scope creep, um, but that's why I always have a, an endpoint. Retainers should always have an endpoint. So I'll usually do a three-month contract with them 
and I'll say, listen, it doesn't mean we're, we're going to stop working together after three months. I just want to be able to lock in my pricing better after three months because I'll know what it's like to work with you and your team after that time. So that's a thing that I'm considering to get away from the, the phone calls that people can schedule and pay me ahead of time. So if, if you, do you have any advice for me as I look to set up a brand new retainer system, what would be your, uh, Mike's pro tips on that? Well, I mean, what are, what are your issues right now with it when you're looking to, are you running into any roadblocks or you're unsure about something? Uh, I really want to divorce the, the whole concept from paying, you know, they're, they're right now they're paying me for time yeah. blocks. Right. And I want to get completely away from that. Uh, my only constraint is that the clients that I've had, these are some of my older clients. So while I don't want to come off as, I don't want to come off as a jerk, but I also don't want to resent them for, you know, doing a lot of work for not an appropriate price. So I'm really trying to just transition away from, you know, scheduling my time and get them more in. And I, I'm, you know, I'm aware that some of them are going to drop probably. They're going to be like, well, this is different and weird and it scares me off. So, no, but um, they'll actually like it because they'll get, um, they'll get more predictability out of it and they know they have you, you know, whenever they need you. But um, what I, I'd recommend you do is chunk everything out. So for example, um, I make sure I'll tell them, okay, so the retainer agreement will include uh, emails and phone calls, um, one structured call a week where I do this, this, and this. It's a half an hour long. And usually what I say is I present them with the data for the week and I'll tell them what's coming up in the following week. Um, and then emails, unlimited emails, um, but I check my emails twice a day. Uh, and then it, that's like a chunk of work. Like that is something that uh, you can help service your clients with, but they also know that they don't have you at their disposal. They just can't call you 20 times a day because uh, some clients will take advantage of that. So a part of a retainer means that you have to put structure around uh, the communication, right? And then your services, like gotcha. let's just take, we just talked about SEO. I don't do SEO per se. I'll, I'll outsource it. But with SEO, there's two very different types. There's on-page SEO and there's off-page SEO. So if I was doing a retainer agreement for SEO, I'd say, okay, here's the, the, the retainer for the on-page SEO. Like this covers nothing off-page. Like on-page SEO, I'll look at your technical code. I'll do the reporting. You'll get one report every two weeks or one report every month, whatever you want to say. But everything has to be almost like you walk into a restaurant and you see a menu of options. Like that is what the chef will cook for you. On a retainer agreement, that's what the chef or that's what you, the freelancer, are acting as the chef. You're saying, okay, here's the dish I'm going to be giving you. It's going to consist of an appetizer, a main course, and a dessert. These are the ingredients that goes into it. Anything outside of that is going to cost extra. So you just have to be really good to scope it out. Uh, and now that you know the client and you've been working with them for so long, it'll be that much easier because you know what they're going to expect in terms of communication, right? So that's what the way I would suggest approaching it. Yeah, that's really good insight. The, the one thing that I was really worried about were the phone calls and, you know, it's actually taking up way, way more time than I wanted it to. But um, I, I don't want to get into the emergency service business. Like, I don't want you to have a, a Salesforce emergency and I'm the one that contacts or that you contact. Um, I'm much more proactive and do things the right way. So to encourage that, I do set like time frames of you have to schedule out so many days for a phone call, those kind of things as well to kind of protect myself from like last minute stuff. But yeah, last minute I, stuff very will come good up. 
Emergencies yeah. will come up. Uh, it's important that your retainer agreement doesn't restrict them in any way. Like if you know that they want to call you three times a day, then you got to build that into your retainer. <laughs> you know, you have, you, if you already know what it's like right. to work with them. Like I am an entrepreneur slash executive coach. Uh, and this is the way I do my retainer agreements. I don't charge people per hour um, every time they want to get on a phone with me, I'll say, listen, if you, sure. this is my plan for entrepreneur coaching. Uh, you'll get one phone call a week with me with unlimited email threads. Like, and I check my emails twice, twice a day. So allow for a two day response time on uh, business days for, for emails. Like that's what they know to expect. Um, so they know they can reach out to me at any time within those parameters. That's awesome. So I've got retainers with several clients now. And now that I'm implementing Google ads, I find that the retainers, they don't have a fixed scope because we're continuously uh, optimizing the account and then we've got campaigns that come in and out as well throughout the year. So, um, and, and every client has a different schedule. And since I have a team member who works with me on the Google ads, what I do is we, we do use timesheets internally. So um, both myself and my team member use timesheets. But then if the number of requests from the client starts to exceed the amount that we can do within the budget that they have set for their, you know, we, we originally set a, a budget for the retainer and it's the same every month. Um, if it starts getting to the point where I can see that we're over-servicing, then if the, the client requests something, then I will, I guess, politely turn around to them and say, well, we haven't got enough budget for us to do these requests in, in the current month. We will need to prioritise them and do them in a future month. Or alternatively, if it is urgent, we'll need to fix the um, retainer for um, six months in advance, something like that, so that I know that because at the moment I've got rolling monthly uh, contracts for, for many of them. And so um, if, if I know that there's going to be a scope creep, then I'll, I'll fix it for the, the next six months. And that way at least I've got confidence that they're not going to cancel the contract and we've just over-serviced, you know, um, in, in a particular month, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense. That's the reason why I said, you know, always put an end date on those retainers. So you can tell them, listen, we're going to reevaluate, uh, at the end of the, the retainer agreement, usually minus three months, you know, what it's like to, to work together. It might, the retainer might go down, it might go up, but in your case with ads, I mean, that's tough because I hire a lot of people to do Google ads and they're usually all over the map. Like they say they can do something in 10 hours or for a thousand dollars and and they don't even ask me how many ad groups, how many tests I want to do. Like I can do A-B tests all day long. I can make your life miserable. Like you have to tell them like, listen, for this, this retainer agreement, this limits me or this limits you to, you know, six A-B tests uh, with 20 ad groups, which should be plenty for what you want to do. Like just make sure it's enough resources so where they're not limiting their effectiveness of their, their return or your work. Um, but you have to put limits on that kind of stuff. Definitely. I've also been considering when I do proposals, it could be worthwhile splitting the proposal up in terms of, um, you know, search is this much and then display is this much. So if their, if their budget is limited, then that limits the number of channels that they can use as well. Because the trouble is if they turn around and say, well, this is what my budget is, so I have to then manage the project within that budget. But if we're 
touching too many, like if the project becomes too complex, it's more likely that there's going to be emergencies crop up that require uh, additional work or over-servicing if it's a more complex project. So by reducing the scope to only one method of Google Ads delivery, then it can uh, work within a constrained budget like that. Excellent point. I think there's a lot here to go through. If there's a way to just boil this down to like three or four ideas or steps really quickly that people can kind of uh, grab as takeaways, jot down and then think through before they come back, listen again, and then make a decision on how they want to move forward. What, what are those three or four ideas? Well, for me, uh, I would say if a client asks you about hourly billing, have three reasons to come back to them and say, why do you need hourly billing? Because there's a reason for that. Um, number, number two, along those same lines is when you're on a discovery call with a client, try not to talk about hourly billing right off the bat. Wait until you've already presented your value to the client. And number three, really consider your, your services uh, and how you're gonna package them up, almost like when you sit down in a restaurant and you see like uh, you know, the, the main course, the appetizer, everything's kind of packaged up on the menu. You wanna do that with your services so you can provide a better scope of, scope of work and, um, and menu services for yourself. It helps put clarity in your mind around your business and also helps your client understand your capabilities. Sounds good. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Brad, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah. So uh, I have been going through and getting uh, in shape for my yearly fit test, which is a yearly ritual for anybody in the military. You have to do a run. I suck at running. Uh, but one of the hacks that I do actually came out of Tim Ferriss's uh, four-hour body book. Um, and so I, I do a couple workouts out of there, but I also do um, cross-training on a uh, assault bike. An assault bike or an Airdyne, Schwinn Airdyne, they're these the fan bikes that you get on and you pump your arms and you you uh, you know bike as fast as you can. And I've been doing some uh, you know high intensity interval training and uh, some different endurance stuff on that to kind of get back in shape. It's winter in Ohio, which means that I don't always get to run outside, so that's a a good substitute. So I got the assault bike and it is just super rugged and I love using it. And, uh, so I'm going to pick that. Nice. And the other thing I, well, yeah, I have, uh, so the, there's also, I started doing sailing this past year and I got like the bug. And so I've been trying to find different ways to, uh, to sail. And again, right now, currently I'm in Ohio. So, uh, I found this inflatable sailboat that you can get, uh, and take to, you know, it's, it's tiny, it's inflatable. So you don't need a ton of wind. It, it looks like a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, I thought it was cool to check out. I haven't ordered it yet, but I'm thinking, thinking that might be a way for me to, uh, you know, instead of buying a boat that I have to trailer and do all that, it just fits right in the, the trunk of your car. So, uh, I'm going to pick the T-Wall, uh, sailboat and, uh, put a link, get, get you the link here. Nice. All right, Brooks, what are your picks? Yeah, so my pick today is uh, the StackShare.io API. Um, so StackShare is where people and companies share what stack they're using for technology stacks. Um, this past week, I hit the API, which you can do 100 for 100 calls for free. And uh, I hit that with, uh, you know, companies using Ionic development and then 
went on to LinkedIn and, and connected with a bunch of people from those companies. And I got some good leads from that. So that was uh, my success of the week for prospecting. Nice. How about you, Petra? I've got something a bit different. So I actually like to relax by knitting, but because I'm such a detail oriented person, I like knitting complicated things. <laughs> so I do lace knitting and um, in quite fine yarn. And I picked up a book recently called Japanese Knitting Stitches from Tokyo's Kazibo, Kazikobo Studio, sorry. Um, 200 Stitch Patterns by Yoko Hatta. And I really like this book because the Japanese approach their knitting in a different way from the American books. Everything is charted and they have quite technical charts and they're, they're really beautiful. They really care about the aesthetics. So this book is a delight for anyone who likes quite technical knitting like I do. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And I don't knit. So, um, I'm going to throw in a couple of picks on my own. Uh, one of the picks I have is, uh, the expanse. So I just started watching the expanse season four. Um, and yeah, it's, it's looking to shape up to be as good as the other seasons. So I'm going to shout out about that. Um, they stick pretty close to the books and the books are really good too. So I think I'm just going to leave my picks there this week. Actually, I'm not. So one other thing that I'm going to put out there, um, I've been working on a, basically it's a short application to be a host on devchat.tv shows. Um, we do have openings on a few shows. So if you're interested in being a host, um, you can fill that in. It's also going to be the list I go to if we need people to fill in. So if it looks like we're going to be shorthanded, I may invite you on as a guest host periodically. Um, and then the people who are guest hosting a lot are probably going to wind up being the next hosts. So, uh, if you're looking for a way to make that work, uh, check that out. Um, I'll just put it up at devchat.tv slash become a host. And uh, yeah, we'll make that work. Um, Mike, what are your picks? Well, I've got a cool tool I found online that really helped uh, my email engagement. It's called Picksnippet. Uh, Picksnippet.com uh, with an S, sorry. Picksnippets.com. And um, it's really cool because what you do is you dynamically create these images by autofilling the, the user's first name. So let's say you have an email list of 5,000 people you want to send out a, a webinar blast to. And you have everybody's email and first name and say MailChimp. What you do is you create this image and uh, you port it over to MailChimp. There's easy instructions on how to do it. And uh, it will send an email. Like I sent one that says, are you coming to the webinar? And it'll in, in, input their first name. Are you coming to the webinar, Charles? And they'll be like, what? This is crazy. How's, how's the image have my name on it? So it like really customizes the email rather than just uh, sending a blanket email to everybody about a webinar. You can now um, put somebody's first name on an image and it's uh, really cool. It's increased my click rate and, um, and also my webinar uh, signups. Nice. All right. Well, thanks again, Mike, for coming and talking to us. Um, hopefully we can get folks to uh, go check out your course. Thanks. Yeah. Freelancermasterclass.com. All right, folks, uh, we're going to wrap it up here. In the meantime, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.